Welcome to the Bodhisattva Ta Berlin podcast. Join us for live recordings from classes, insightful talks, and guided meditations. Okay, so I think for a few of you it's the first of the Thursday nights that you've been to. Um, so I'll just give a quick summary of what we've been exploring and uh, then we'll come to tonight's topic. So we started off four weeks ago with a saying from the Zen tradition and that saying is, see if I can remember it now after four weeks, um, a special transmission outside the scriptures, no dependence on words, direct pointing to the mind seeing into one's own true nature, realizing Buddhahood. So we've already done the first three lines. Uh, special transmission outside the scriptures, no dependence on words, direct pointing to the mind. Uh, so tonight we come to the final verse, so seeing into one's own true nature and realizing Buddhahood. Uh, I think... As, as is often the case, I think in previous weeks it's been exactly the same. Each, each line of the verse gives us a question, or throws up questions. Uh, so in this case, what is one's own true nature? If, if we're seeing into one's own true nature, uh, what is our own true nature? And if the verse is telling us about realizing Buddhahood, well, what, what is Buddhahood? Uh, so that is the territory we are trying to explore this evening. So what is our own true nature? And what is Buddhahood? Uh, in terms of the first question, so what is our own true nature? Uh, you could say the whole of Buddhism is trying to address that. Uh, the whole of Buddhism is, is trying to allow us, give us a vehicle to explore what we really are. Uh, probably we're, well, definitely we're not what we think we are. Uh, so Buddhism is giving us tools to explore, like what, what are we really? Uh, I'm sure that question has occurred to all of you. It's like, what, what am I? Uh, who am I really? Uh, so what is our own true nature? Buddhism's trying to help us to explore that. And there are many ways it does that, many kind of doorways into that question. Uh, one, of the, one of the most common, perhaps, or one of the ones you'll definitely heard of, is impermanence. Uh, so classic Buddhist teaching is uh, impermanence. Sangharachita once said, who Sangharachita is the founder of our order and tradition, uh, he said, if you could put Buddhism into one word, impermanence. Uh, that, that would capture the whole of the teaching. Uh, the, the problem can be that sometimes when we read about or hear about impermanence as a teaching, uh, it, it can sometimes be a little bit cold. Uh, so, yeah, all things are impermanent, nothing lasts, uh, great. And it can be a bit, bit of a downer. Uh, not necessarily, but it can come across like that. Uh, so, I think... I think 
we need to be careful with exploring this territory and, and in exploring impermanence. So I wanted to read you a poem. It's quite a long poem, actually, I realised when I read it out earlier to myself. And this is by Kukai, the 9th century Japanese monk, uh, from his major works. And he's talking about impermanence, but I think it's the opposite of what I described before. Rather than being kind of a bit cold, uh, there's something, I think, particularly special about the poem. So uh, just sit and enjoy the poem, and I'll read the whole thing. And then I'll talk about different aspects of it. You ask me why I entered the mountain deep and cold. Awesome, surrounded by steep peaks and grotesque rocks. A place that is painful to climb and difficult to descend, wherein reside the gods of the mountain and the spirits of trees. Have you not seen Oh, have you not seen the peach and plum blossoms in the royal garden? They must be in full bloom, pink and fragrant, now opening in the April showers, now falling in the spring gales, flying high and low all over the garden, the petals scatter. Some sprigs may be plucked by the strolling spring maidens and the flying petals plucked by the flittering spring birds. Have you not seen, or have you not seen, the water gushing up in the divine spring of the garden? No sooner does it arise than it flows away forever. Thousands of shining lines flow as they come forth. Flowing, flowing, flowing into an unfathomable abyss. Turning, whirling again, they flow on forever and no one knows where they will stop. Have you not seen, oh have you not seen, that billions have lived in China, in Japan? None have been immortal time immemorial. Ancient sage kings or tyrants, good subjects or bad, fair ladies or homely, who could enjoy eternal youth? Noble men and lowly alike, without exception, die away. They have all died, reduced to dust and ashes. The singing halls and dancing stages have become the abode of foxes. Transient as dreams, bubbles or lightning, all are perpetual travellers. Have you not seen, or have you not seen, this has been a person's fate, how can you alone live forever? Thinking of this, my heart always feels torn. You too are like the sun going down in the western mountains, 
or a living corpse whose span of life is nearly over. Futile would be my stay in the capital. Away, away I must go. I must not stay there. Release me, for I shall be master of the great void. A child of Shingon must not stay there. I have never tired of watching the pine trees and rocks at Mount Koya. The limpid stream of the mountain is the source of my inexhaustible joy. Discard pride in earthly gains. Do not be scorched in the burning house, the triple world. Discipline in the woods alone lets us soon enter the eternal realm. Okay, so that is Kukai's poem. Like I said, a poem on impermanence, but uh, not not cold. I don't think, anyway. Uh, despite his beginning uh, reference to a cold mountain. Um, so I want to explore the poem a little bit and talk about how the themes in the poem relate to meditation and our practice of meditation. So Kukai says at the beginning, uh, he's, this, this is known as a, a letter to a nobleman in Kyoto. So he's writing a poem, but, but it's kind of a letter. And it's as if he's responding. So he's being asked, oh, why do you go up to the cold mountain? Uh, why do you surround yourself with these steep peaks and rocks and live in a place that's hard to get to and hard to come down from? And uh, Kukai did live in the mountains, so he uh, spent a lot of time in nature, had this uh, monastic settlement in Mount Koya. Uh, so he, he literally did live in that kind of environment. Uh, I think we can also take this more metaphorically, so this uh, dwelling in a, a place that is hard to get to, uh, dwelling in a place that's deep and cold. We could take this, I think, as, as a metaphor for our own exploration of uh, our own true nature, uh, what we really are. Um, yeah, we can take it as a metaphor for that, the kind of mountains of the mind or the depths uh, of the mind. So in previous weeks, we've, we've been talking in those terms and uh, I think it was last week we were using the metaphor of an underworld. Uh, so going into a kind of underworld, a journey into the underworld. Uh, that was in relation to emotional experience. So I was talking last week about how uh, we're very emotional creatures. Uh, I certainly am, I'm guessing you are too. We're, we're driven by our emotions. Uh, sometimes they pop out unexpectedly. Uh, but always there's this kind of emotional current. But often we're somewhat removed from that, uh, if you like, a bit higher up in thought, in thinking. Uh, the emotions which we associate with the heart are a bit less easy to, to access. Uh, so it's like we have this under, underground, undercurrent, uh, underworld to our experience. 
So Buddhism, Buddhism uh, encourages us to go into that underworld, go into that territory and discover, like, what are we underneath, uh, what we think we are. So here I think we've got another metaphor for that. So going into the solitary mountain uh, where people don't really go, uh, I think we've got another metaphor here for the, the territory that we're trying to explore uh, through Buddhism. But he's been asked, the, the question he's responding to is, well, why do you go there? And when we put it like that, this kind of underworld journey, uh, sounds a bit edgy, doesn't it? Uh, a bit like the danger of going up to the top of a mountain, going down into the underworld, to the unknown. Uh, why, would, why would people do that? Uh, why would Kukai do that? So his poem is a response to that question. Uh, I know why I do that, because I, uh, in a way, don't feel like I've got a choice. I, I know there's more to life. Uh, I, I've had that intuition that, that there's definitely more to life that I uh, don't see. Uh, and I find that annoying, <laughs> you know, frustrating. I, I want to really see. Uh, so without going into my whole life story, that, that's been a compulsion for me to, to discover, to find out what I'm not seeing, what I'm missing. Uh, what I'm missing by being in a kind of thought world, thought worlds. So right at the beginning of the course, we were talking about meditation as a way of dropping out of merely thought worlds. Thoughts are fantastic. Like what a human, what a gift as a human being to be able to think. Uh, but if we assume that what we think is also what's really going on, we're sort of in trouble then, because we can get lost in thought. We all know this. We've, we've tried meditation. Uh, we can get lost in thought. So with meditation, we're trying to drop out of mere thought worlds so that we see thoughts for what they are. We can use them. We can uh, enjoy them. But we're also aware of what else is going on. So in the meditation, we're exploring sensations. And that's not thought. You know, when we feel tingling, temperature, uh, the movement of the breath, uh, we're not, that's not thinking about the breath. There's a definite difference. Um, so, so I want to drop out those thought worlds and into what's really going on. Uh, and I think Kukai does too. I think Kokai has seen more than I have what's really going on. And I love these lines in the poem, have you not seen, have you not seen the plum blossoms in the royal garden? Uh, I'm sure a lot of people who he was talking about have seen them, but have they really seen them? Uh, it's like we can walk through the city and we can see things, but do we really see? Sometimes we look, don't we? We register. But do we really see? And you get the impression that he's someone who's really seen. He can describe them in kind of exquisite detail. Uh, different times of the year, the way they fall, the way the water flows and just goes on flowing. It's like a intensely beautiful description. Uh, intensely beautiful poetry. 
So he's seeing, what he's seeing, you could, to, to condense it into a word, uh, he's seeing impermanence. He's seeing the spring blossoms, he's seeing the water, uh, but he's seeing that impermanence and beauty are two sides of the same coin. Uh, so if, if we really see, if we really see things are impermanent, transient, not, not around for very long, there's a, there's a special beauty that is perceptible, that, that can be seen. Uh, you've all had those experiences, I'm sure, of sunsets or uh, the smile on somebody's face that is so fleeting and momentary. Uh, when we experience beauty, I would say we're always experiencing impermanence, even if we're not conscious of that. But the very fact it arises and fades away again, we can appreciate the moment. Yeah. So I think what Kukai is saying is that, that all things are impermanent and there's a beauty to that impermanence. What I also love about this poem is that it doesn't lapse into a kind of sentimentality. Uh, there's a soberness, and that comes after the plum blossoms and the water. Uh, there's the recognition that people like spring blossom and like flowing streams. People also uh, arise for a short while and depart. And uh, that's true since the beginning of time, if time even has a beginning. Uh, that is always true. And he asks that question, why, why do you alone uh, feel that you're an exception to that? So again, I think this is a hint at those thought worlds. So uh, one of the delusions uh, that the Buddha used to talk about or point to and that he himself saw uh, was what we might call an immortality delusion. Uh, we all know that we're going to die. We've, we sort of know that as a thought and conceptually, but uh, it's hard to take that to heart, isn't it? First of all, it's pretty terrifying, uh, but also just, just to allow that to sink in and live knowing that that's the truth, uh, it's very hard to do. Uh, so many distractions or fears around that, uh, that it's, it's very hard to do. So I think Kukai is giving a kind of wake up, um, encouraging us to wake up to that truth uh, and see that there's a beauty to that too. So people are transient like dreams, bubbles, lightning. So he's using images again. And then he says, uh, whenever he thinks about that, he, he feels torn. He always feels torn. Now let me find the line. Thinking of this, my heart always feels torn. So uh, the fact that things are impermanent, there's an inseparable beauty from that. People too are impermanent. He is impermanent. Uh, he must withdraw. He must go back up to the mountain and not stay within the... Uh, grounds of the palace or uh, live live like fully in the world and in the thought worlds he always feels torn uh, so I like that there's this kind of holding of opposites uh, 
holding of some kind of ambiguity or contradiction. So he's got to keep that wise perspective and yet he feels drawn to the world and to respond to the world. But, he says, through doing that, he experiences an inexhaustible joy. So the inexhaustible joy of the stream in the mountain uh, and the rocks, the pine trees. So I'll, I'll just say a few more words, then we'll have a break. Uh, but I think this poem is an expression of one's own true nature. So this line in our Zen verse the question, what is our own true nature? I think Kukai is really communicating something to us. Uh, not just about our true nature, but the true nature of everything. Uh, the true nature of life, of existence. And doing it, that in a way that's not just kind of philosophical or theoretical, but uh, is communicating beauty, uh, complexity, ambiguity, So, how is all of that relevant to us and to our practice of meditation? Because this has been an exploration of meditation over these four weeks. Uh, so meditation is, uh, as I've said before, an invitation to explore the depths. So we can meditate to relax. Uh, we can meditate uh, to do that, but, but ultimately, I think Buddhist meditation is about exploring the depths, finding out what's, what's really going on. That's an invitation to do that. Drop down, uh, go into, explore. So it's helping us clarify what meditation is then. Uh, it includes this aspect of, of looking, of, of really trying to see. Uh, but also it contains, uh, meditation gives us a way of containing what we see. Um, so I, I can remember having glimpses of the, the truth of impermanence, let's say, when I was younger. Even as a child I would think about death. Um, as a young kid going to my mum and you know worrying about it and her very skillfully helping me distract myself and, and not worry about it anymore. Uh, but, but those thoughts would arise. And in my 20s, that, that kind of erupted and I had to do something much more... Uh, I had to do something that was more of a long-term strategy than just distracting myself from it. Um, meditation... I think gives us a way to contain those truths when they are coming to us. So when we drop into that awareness and we see things more fully, we need a way of just being able to witness that or be with that or hold that. So meditation is helping us create a mind that can uh, allow that truth in, allow that truth to come in without shattering. So it's like we're creating a, a vessel a bowl or a cup you know, that, can, that can hold the truth. But also meditation is a way of allowing us to experience the joy of that. So yes, the truth can shatter 
Uh, the truth can break, uh, but the truth can also bring joy. That's what Kukai is telling us. Uh, really seeing beauty, uh, really experiencing what he describes as inexhaustible joy, not just impermanent pleasure as opposed to pain, but something much more uh, inexhaustible, limitless, subtle, you might say. So meditation helps us to notice subtleties, uh, just like the breath. It's like I can have a superficial sense of my breath, it sort of goes in and out. But it's pretty remarkable, isn't it, when we start looking at the tiny, tiny kind of subtle movements, changes, textures, uh, what effect that has on the mind subtly, kind of openings, the joys, the, the fears, the tensings. Uh, so meditation helps us explore the subtlety of experience, the richness of it. Okay, I think that's all I'll say. Uh, I hope you have, have found the poem a useful way of exploring that theme. Uh, I appreciate for a lot of you this is like jumping in at the end, but this is timeless kind of poetry and material, I think, and, and hopefully it's communicated something of what, what Buddhism is about and, and how meditation uh, sits within Buddhism 